have a couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, next week in Satsang, we are celebrating the birthday of our beloved Devi Ma. She is the Divine Mother and uh, the Shakti of the Ashram. So please join us on this auspicious evening. Next, we, having, we have an upcoming retreat uh, online running from the 1st to the 3rd of October and it's in celebration of Baba Muktananda's Mahasamadhi. The retreat culminates with an intensive on the 3rd of October and Guruji will be giving a Shakti Park meditation during this time and people say that the energy definitely comes through on the screen. Um, also, we will soon be having a public satsang which will be available for you to invite all of your friends and family to join and watch for free. It was going to be later this month, but it turns out it was at the exact same time as the AFL Grand Final. <laughs> um, so it's going to be next month instead so that your friends and family will be free and sober to watch it. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, we are streaming free self-inquiry meditations every morning at 8.30 on Instagram. These are led by various ashram teachers and they'll continue daily during the Melbourne lockdown. Very nice. <clears throat> and the next thing we're going to do is the Guru Stotram. Since uh, this is such a strange time, so full of difficulty. We've been chanting the Guru Stotram, a uh, selection of uh, shlokas from the Guru Gita, uh, so that everyone may transcend suffering and be healed and so on. And tonight we're adding a special thing, the um, universal prayer. This being uh, the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of, uh, of a great... Uh, tragedy, great atrocity. Uh, and so the universal prayer, I'll talk about the words right afterwards, but praise for the understanding and love in this world. So let's do the Guru Stotram now. Jesus, I'll 
sashvatam shantam yomatitam yaranjanam narabindu pravatitam asme shri gurave shakti samarudas tattvam avadi bhushita bhukti mukti pradataya Ah uh-huh. 
It's a universal prayer, and it, uh, it's such a beautiful expression of goodwill. It's something we need desperately in these days. First verse says, may the wicked become good, may the good obtain peace, may the peaceful be freed from bonds, may the freed set others free. And goes on, blessings on the subjects of those who are ruling, and may the great lords rule the earth in a just manner. May good always be the lot of cows and Brahmins. May all people be happy. May all animals and also the sages uh, be good. May it, and may it rain at the right time. May the earth have storehouses full of grain. May this country be free of disturbances. May the priests be free of persecution. So it's uh, climate change is involved. May all be happy. May all be healthy. May all see only auspicious sights. May no one have a share in sorrow. May everyone surmount his difficulties. May everyone see only auspicious sights. May everyone have his desires fulfilled. May everyone everywhere be glad. Of course, these are all impossibilities, but the goodwill is so beautiful. May blessings fall on our mother and father. Blessings on the cows, the fields, the workers. May everything of ours flourish and be an aid to knowledge. And long may we see the sun. Oh, may we be protected together. May we enjoy the fruits of our actions together. May we achieve strength together. May our knowledge be full of light. May we never have enmity for one another. May guru and disciple always be together in love. <clears throat> it's a beautiful, beautiful sentiment for our troubled times. So in that spirit, I want to uh, give my normal welcome, which is to say, as Baba used to say before every program, Subkobarisanmane kesat premse hardik swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would say that that welcome was the essence 
of spirituality. So in that spirit, I want to welcome you, uh, the ashramites here, and then everybody in Radioland. Welcome to you all. <clears throat> Tonight's program, um, we're going to look at the teachings of two South Indian saints and yogis from the 20th century, uh, Swami Ramdas and Sri Krishna Menon. Uh, South India of the first part of the 20th century was filled with great beings. Uh, we should know that Bhagwan Nityananda was born in the South, and he, uh, he lived there until around 1930 when he made his way north to the Bombay area, to Ganeshpuri. Baba Muktananda was also born in the South in 1908 and stayed in that area till around uh, 1930 as well. Uh, the great sages of South India of that time was Sri Ramana Maharshi, whose ashram is in the South, Sri Aurobindo, whose ashram is South, Siddharud Swami, who, whose ashram Baba uh, studied at, and also our two tonight, Swami Ramdas and Sri Krishna Menon, who's also known as Atmananda. <clears throat> now, Krishna Menon uh, was born in 1883. Uh, Ramdas was born in 1884 in Kanangat. Kanangat should be familiar to everyone because that's where Bhagwan Nityananda's caves are. Uh, Sri Krishna Menon died in 1959. Swami Ramdas died in 1963, so their lives basically overlapped. And I'm thinking uh, uh, they must have known each other. I think Baba probably met uh, Krishna Menon, probably met Ramdas. Ramdas certainly met Bhagwan Nityanandi, reports on it, and so on. And <clears throat> they all probably had darshan of uh, Ramana Maharshi. So these two, attained the same goal, and they, but they achieved it through very different methods. Krishna Menon was a, a jnani of a very high order, and Swami Ramdas was a great bhakta. <clears throat> so they represent the two polarities of yoga, you could say. Uh, Krishna Menon, <clears throat> there he is. He was from Brahmin parents. His father was a Vedic Brahmin, and he learned the Vedas from him. He had uncles who were poets and scholars, and he had a scholarly bent. He got a BA degree from the university and became a teacher. He got married in 1910. After graduation, he became a policeman. He later took a law degree and became a prosecuting attorney. Uh, and he, and uh, he had the, that kind of mind, very clear, very sharp, and you'll hear that, that comes out in his spirituality too. Eventually he returned to spirituality, he met his guru, and after retirement he became a spiritual teacher on the path of wisdom. He taught from the perspective of Advaita, or non-dualism. Uh, basically there is only Brahman, uh, everything else is unreal. There's only the absolute, absolute consciousness. <clears throat> Next, Swami Ramdas. 
who should be more familiar to most of us. He came not from a Brahmin family, but from a commercial family, and he himself became a textile manufacturer. He also married, and he had a daughter. Uh, at age 38, he was overcome with the desire to know God, and he left home. Uh, I've always liked uh, the, the way that the, the bug, the spiritual bug, descends on a person. You never know when. You never know how, what age or in what condition of life. But suddenly there comes this incredible passion to know the self, to know the higher truth, and to attain the self. So that happened to him when he was 38. Um, he considered his father his guru because he gave him the mantra, Sri Ram, J Ram, J J Ram. However, he did get Shaktipat from Ramana Maharshi. He spent some time at his ashram, had ecstatic experiences. Um, <clears throat> anyway, as a result of all of that, by his own account, he became God intoxicated and saw Ram everywhere. And he would, he would uh, address people as Ram, and he'd tell, about, tell himself about Ram. Ram says this, hello, Ram, he would say, things like that. He saw Ram everywhere. He also visited Sudaruta Swami, and he eventually founded an ashram in Kanangad near Bhagwan Nityananda's caves. And his spiritual partner was Mother Krishnabhaya, who came later and uh, became his spiritual successor. His ashram is uh, running uh, to this very day. It's in the third, fourth, third, fourth generation of, of gurus there. <clears throat> I think the current guru is named Muktananda. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, he also traveled the world, visited the West in 1954. As I said, his path was surrender to God, to chant his name and see God everywhere. <clears throat> so I got this from a, a biography of Krishna Menon. Maybe you should put his picture up during this. This is a, an Indian biography, so it has many of the Indian... Uh, hagiographic qualities. No, Krishna Menon. There he is, looking ferocious. Um, this is from his biography. It says, even though he'd been an athlete in his youth, he took no physical exercise during the last 30 years of his life. The period, purity of his system obtained by his intense yogic sadhana had made him immune in many ways. So he didn't it was good that he didn't exercise because his yoga had made his body pure. Um, his control over breath was so perfect that by a mere thought, he could use this control in such a manner that it served the same purpose as physical exercise would. Wouldn't that be nice? I've just run two miles. He was brought up in a pure sattvic, brahminic uh, way, and was a strict vegetarian throughout his life. He'd wake up regularly before a.m., before 4 a.m., and finish all his ablutions and bath before daybreak. His food was Kerala Brahmin vegetarian food, rice, vegetables, milk, and milk products. The quantity consumed every day was incredibly small, considering that he talked to devotees for anything from 6 to 12 hours a day, and considering the deficiency of calories in his unusual food, it was a puzzle to the doctors how he managed to live. 
<clears throat> now, this is an interesting fact. He chewed fresh Jaffna tobacco of the strongest variety available to the extent of about four or five pounds a month. That sounds like, seems like a lot of tobacco. He would stop doing so completely sometimes for days, perhaps to show he was not enslaved either by this or any other habit. And he took to smoking sweet and mildly flavored cigarettes when he went to Europe in 1950 and gave up the habit completely in 1958. Push the menin. These are some interesting things. He insisted vehemently that no trace should ever be left behind after any activity and observed it to the, to the very letter all through his life. He held that any trace left behind by an activity was the pernicious seed of its samskara. It's a wonderful thought that no trace should be left. You should cut through life so cleanly that you don't leave a wave in your wake. And then when you do that, then you don't create future karmas, future stuff that you have to do. So he, he wanted his disciples to live so perfectly, so well, that they didn't constantly stir things up which would have to be handled later. Um, he says, uh, procrastination was unknown to him. Whenever he decided upon any specific program, he was obstinate like a child and did not rest until it was completed. <clears throat> he proved by practice and precept alike that his cherished ideal that everyone should live by the sweat of his own brow. He held that the slavery of the body was but a prelude to the slavery of the soul. So strong man, strong yogi, highly disciplined, a policeman and a prosecuting attorney. So here are some of his teachings and a yani. Here are a few of his teachings. <clears throat> Question. This is from June of 1957. Krishna also known as Atmananda. What is meditation? He says, meditation is an activity of the mind and is purely yogic in character. Normally it involves a process of spatializing the object of meditation. By spatializing means that you imagine the object, whatever your object is, in space with you. You're here and that's over there. So you're putting it imaginably in space, whether you're thinking about Krishna or Om or whatever the object is, you spatialize it, is the way he has is putting it. He says, the meditator thinks of the object as outside and in front of himself. This spatializing is there even when one tries to meditate on the formless. One thinks of the formless as outside and in the front. You ever try to think of the formless and you think of the formless out there. <clears throat> but, he says, after one has heard the truth from the guru, one can transcend this tendency of spatialization and use meditation to establish oneself in the truth. So in the tradition of jnana yoga, the non-dual tradition, uh, to say once you've heard the truth from the guru, which is technically called shravan, shravana, to hear the truth, 
that's the same in that system as what we mean by Shaktipat. To hear the truth. It's not just, it's not just hearing something the guru says, but it's to hear that so that that truth enters you and awakens something in you. That's the true hearing. So once you've heard the truth from the guru, your meditation shifts. To do this, the seeker first has to give up the outside and meditate inside himself. The meditation turns very interior. He draws the object of meditation into his own inner self. <clears throat> the inside is the seat of the subject, and there the subject-object duality is not possible. So in, the, in spatialization, there's subject-object, but inside, there's none of that. <clears throat> now when spatialization ceases, one stands as the real self. So he's saying instead of creating that thing as other, you identify and become one with it. You bring it into the subject. <clears throat> Question. Is this also the case with bhakti yoga, devotional meditation? And uh, Krishnamanan says, in the same way, bhakti or devotion is a mental attitude directed to an object, the object of devotion. The object in this case is the ishta devata, a chosen form of God. Here the preference and the individual differences of, of the devotee come in. That's one of the beauties of, of um, the path of devotion uh, because it's left to the individual to pick the object of devotion. Very often you'll go to the guru, the guru will help you decide what your ishta devata is, your, your chosen ideal, your, your ideal, your, 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 the object of your devotion is. But ultimately it's your, your being picks it. So he says, <clears throat> some prefer Shiva, some prefer Krishna or Ram or the Satguru. In other traditions, they may meditate on the Christ or the Buddha and so on. Whatever the Ishtadevata is, the process by itself does not give the ultimate result of moksha. So the process of meditating on an ideal does not give moksha, he says. Moksha or liberation is impersonal. To attain liberation, one must understand the impersonal nature of God and gradually change the goal of meditation to the impersonal. So even if you're worshiping Jesus, you must see that he's a doorway to the impersonal. The same is true of the guru and so on. Baba used to always say, Baba said so many times, he said, don't think the guru is this person five and a half feet tall and wearing funny hats. The guru is the shakti, the guru is the energy, the guru is the principle. <clears throat> so, the truth about God, he says, this is a wonderful statement, the truth about God is that it is the highest concept of the human mind. Therefore, a subjective examination of the mind has to be gone through and its background is self-contacted. This can never be done by the mind alone, unaided. So you have to be able to pick your way from the chatter and clamor and insanity of the mind. 
every one of our minds is insane. Just face it. It's insane. It's filled with tearing thoughts and stupidity and wrong understandings. And um, you have to get beyond that back to the background, as he says, the subject. Um, I love this statement of God is the highest concept of the human mind. What's the highest concept of the human mind? What's your, the highest thing you can think of? The highest thing you can think of. And then God is beyond that. So God is a name for the highest thing you can conceive of. <clears throat> if you are the highest thing you can conceive of, then you are God. You're either an egomaniac or you're self-realized. <laughs> so... Um, he says, this can never be done by the mind unaided. Hence, the truth of one's own real nature has to be heard from the lips of a true guru or sage. So, again, translation, Shaktipat. This can never be done by your own effort, but it must happen through Shaktipat, through the transmission of grace from a realized sage. He puts it in the language of hearing the truth. Aham brahmasmi, tatvamasi, hearing that, but it's not just hearing it, it's hearing the aliveness of that truth, which awakens something. I know that I got a, 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 a wisdom initiation from Baba. Baba was famous for his uh, sort of vital initiations where people would uh, start bouncing off the walls and speaking in tongues and all that. But I got an initiation where he told me always think I am the self. And I could feel that transform my whole being. I was never the same after that. It just worked on me. Just those words themselves carried so much force. <clears throat> so, he goes on. The Guru's instruction carries the wisdom energy so that one can experience one's own swarupa, one's own true form. Having had that experience, then through incessant devotion, the goal must be gradually approached. And that is real bhakti. And it enables one to get established in the self. That is liberation. So when you realize the, the impersonal behind the personal form of the divine that you have, then you can do it. Uh, how are we doing? I have one more that's quite interesting before we move on to Ramdas. Okay. Question. A disciple asked, why was secrecy so strictly observed in expounding the truth in the old Shastras? And even if you see, look at the Guru Gita, at the end of the Guru Gita, it says, do not tell this to somebody, you know, wicked person or somebody who can't understand it. And all the scriptures say that don't, don't give this teaching. The teaching was a humber masmi, I am the self. I am the self. And so don't give this teaching. Don't run around the streets proclaiming, you are the self, I am the self. And, uh, and Krishna Menon's answer is very interesting and unexpected, I would say. He said, why was there so much secrecy emphasized? He says, Evidently, for fear of jeopardizing 
established religion and society. Religion had no place except in duality and social life. It was the prime moving force of social life in ancient times, but the concept of religion could not stand the strict yogic, the strict logic of Vedantic truth. So what he's saying is that the sages, out of respect, they said religion has its role. It has an important role in society. And it's based on duality and practicality. And it can't stand up. If you bring in the higher truth, it'll destroy religion, and that's not a good thing. So you, those who understand the higher truth have to keep it secret. It, it preserves the culture. This is the, the idea. That was in those days. The sages of old who recognized the great need of religion in phenomenal life expanded the ultimate truth under a strict cover of secrecy, thus enabling religion to play its role in lower human society. So they said, we're going to teach this truth, but don't tell it to everyone so that the religious truth can, can do its job. Now this is what he says. He says, but religion in the present day world has been dethroned in many ways. From the 19th century on, we know God is dead and so on. And ungodly cults have come into existence in large numbers. Therefore, Krishna Menon says, it is high time now to throw off the veil of secrecy and broadcast the whole truth in the face of the world, which has already advanced much intellectually. <laughs> Wonderfully charming. Now it's different. Now you go out and you can tell everyone, Tatwamasi, you are the self. Everyone can proclaim that because religion's lost its place and uh, people have evolved to, to the point where they can hear it. Interesting, no? <clears throat> Whether you agree with it or not. So <clears throat> that's... Uh, sample of, of Krishna Menon, the great Yani. Now we go to uh, a different quality. We have Swami Ramdas. Ramdas' teachings very similar to Baba's in many ways. Question. How can one best serve the guru? And what is the best way to receive the guru's grace? Shaktipat. Ramdas. The way is to please the guru by acting according to his advice and to do such things as would please him. In pleasing him, you please your own self and you feel increased love and peace. So the guru, in his impersonal uh, identity, is really the self. And so if the guru is pleased, it means you're pleasing that higher principle. And how do you please him? You follow his teaching. You do the practice. You follow the teaching. You move towards the light. <clears throat> he asks you, he's, uh, Ramdas goes on, the guru asks you to repeat God's name. Hello, Shakti. Shakti's saying, this is long enough. We have to go. Be good. 
So if the guru asks you to repeat God's name, Om Madhogamai, Om Madhogamai, and if you do it as he told you, you'll be performing his best service. You want to take her? Okay. Okay, that'd be good. It says, by taking the name, your heart becomes pure, and you serve those who are in distress without expecting anything in return. That is Guru Seva. So he's saying that by repeating the mantra, you're doing the greatest service. He dwells in the hearts of all beings and creatures. The Guru is the eternal self, appearing in human form to teach and guide so that you may love and serve all beings, especially those who are in distress. This service is Guru Seva. Your mind thereby becomes absolutely pure, and you realize that God is everywhere, and you'll be raised to the same status as that of the Guru. So many have asked me this question, and I say, repeat the mantra constantly. That is the best Seva. This is what Baba used to say, all the time, too. Repeat the mantra. If you don't have the opportunity to serve the guru personally or physically, then repeating the name is just as good. The guru is, is in everybody. You find him also in the suffering distress, in the suffering distressed. By service to the guru, you develop universal vision, beholding your guru everywhere. That is what the guru teaches you, not to adore and worship him in his personal being, but to see him in everyone, both high and low. This saying is perfectly true. When a devotee says he loves God and does not love his neighbor, he is a liar. He has no love for God. That's the teaching that Bob used to give us, see God in each other, see that same divinity. Devotee. Unless one raises, rises to that level, it's very difficult to grasp what you say. Papa Ramdas, you must work up your life so that you may achieve the goal. Learn to love everybody like yourself. Transcend the narrow circle of caste, creed, country, etc. Most of us are caught in our culture or our race, religion, you know, our country and so on, or our uh, political party even. <clears throat> he says, you must gradually expand your vision and learn to love all alike. So it's good to do things that are pleasing to God. We should love each other and behold the truth everywhere. The night previous to Jesus Christ's crucifixion or on the day before, he was arrested for trial and condemned to death. The disciples went to him and asked for his last message. He said, love one another. He did not say, worship me or adore me. True love is motiveless. It is selfless. It is based on the realization of the omnipresent spirit. Universal vision leads to universal love, which is translated 
into universal service. And finally, we'll end with um, uh, Papa Ramdas on meditation, a pretty comprehensive uh, discussion of meditation. We can take that into, into meditation. He said, question, devotee, what is the method of meditation as a witness of the mind? Ramdas, you are the eternal witness, the static Brahman. If you constantly watch the mind in meditation, then the mind will disappear. The watcher alone will remain. That is Brahman. <clears throat> but in a moment, you forget that you are the watcher and think you are the mind. You get confused. Let's do that for a minute. Watch your mind. Just sit as the watcher and watch the mind. That in itself is a great meditation. <clears throat> Don't do it now, we'll do it in a minute. When you, Ramdas says, when you say, my watch, you're implying that you are not the watch. So when you say, my mind, you're implying that you're not the mind. It's the mind belongs to you, right? If you deeply think over this, you'll find you are not the mind, the senses, or the body, because these are all yours. You are something different from them, something beyond them. It is very clear. So sit and witness the mind, standing apart from it, dissociating yourself from it. Then the mind dissolves and you experience divine ecstasy. That is one method of meditation. But it's not so easy to do. Repetition of the mantra prepares the ground so that it becomes easy to attain the witness state. And it's true that uh, people are discouraged sometimes when they sit to meditate the first time and they find the mind is, runs amok and their mind is an insane jumping monkey. They didn't really realize that before. But the truth is that as you say the mantra and you practice, it gets much easier to quiet the mind. You get the hang of it, it's just like a skill. You can become, you can find that inner peace. Ramdas says, there are four methods of meditation. One, repeat God's name, the mantra, aloud and concentrate on the sound of the name. I guess this would also include chanting. Repeat the name aloud and concentrate on it. Chanting like that. And a lot of people in India repeat mantras very loud, you know. They mutter it, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah and listen to the sound. <clears throat> Second, Repeat the guru mantra, feeling the guru's presence in your heart. That means silent repetition and feeling the, feeling the mantra within. Third, identify every object with God. Whatever you see, think, hear, taste, touch, smell, is God. This method makes the thought of God the predominant one in your mind. The, whatever arises in mind, that's God, that's God, that's all God. That is the self. <clears throat> Four, identify with the witness of the mind. 
Whatever you see, you are the witness of it. As the witness, you are the eternal self. Which of those would be uh, Guru Bhav? It fits in there somewhere. So Ramdas goes on, he says, the mischief maker is the mind which makes you identify yourself with your body, your social role, your status, your thoughts and feelings. Therefore develop witness consciousness or what they call awareness of the self or Brahman consciousness. So separate a little bit from the mind and become the observer of the mind. In meditation, identify yourself with Brahman. You say, aham brahmasmi, I am Brahman. I am identified with awareness. I'm identified with the subject, the self, this side of the ledger. I'm identified with consciousness. This is also Guru Bhav. I am, the Guru is in me. Be awake and aware of the self. Eventually the mind vanishes. And I, I always mention that Ramana Maharshi would say, hold the self. Baba would say, meditate on the self. What is the self? Your self-sense, your feeling of self. Hold that. Hold that position of self. When you will, <clears throat> then you will realize you're not the body, but Brahman, truth or God. Therefore, tame the mind by repeating your mantra. Free the mind from desire and fear. All practices are done in order to quiet the mind, which is a veil between yourself and God. Mind is that which separates us. When you remove the mind, in that moment you reveal yourself as you are. The mind is the seat of ignorance. When the mind goes, ignorance goes. Ignorance of what? Of your true nature. Your true nature is self, Atman or Brahman. But if the mind, if the mind cooperates with it, if the mind cooperates with your quest, then it's no longer a barrier to it, but an aid to it. So make your mind work towards the self. Don't let the mind tell you you're not the self, you're a loser, you're no good. Then the mind is becoming an incredible barrier. But make the mind move towards the self. I am the self. I am Shiva. I am Brahman. The guru is within me. <clears throat> So he goes on, so by the above four methods, you'll be able to subdue and completely eliminate the mind. So Ramdas on the mind. So let's meditate for 10 minutes. <clears throat> That's pretty comprehensive. Almost every meditation you can think of is contained in some way in there. So I'll let you pick one. But the essence of what he says is to turn within and be aware of the subject, the witness. Look at your mind as though from a distance. Close your eyes. Your mind is out there. And you are not the mind. You are the one that watches the mind. You are the eternal witness. You are pure awareness. Just sit in that posture and let the mind run. The mind may be positive or negative. It may go here, it may go there. Just be the witness. 
If you'd like, you can repeat the mantra while doing that. Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. I am the witness of the mind. I am the self. And we'll meditate now for 10 minutes. Once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Sakunanath Maharaj Kijay. <laughs>